these songs. It's unclear. It's unclear if you can sample them. There's actually um, so there's a uh, there's a truly amazing, right? So the the first album is all samples, right? And they get sued. We'll talk about that more in a second. They get sued, and then they release <laughs> they release an album that is just the bits they didn't sample followed by silences and it's short enough that it becomes <laughs> it becomes a 45 single but then they have instructions that they include with the album of how to remake the original album by telling you where to scratch in various ver- like the various records that they used but they say you're not allowed to record that because then they'll get sued again welcome to another episode of money for nothing we're back and if you can't tell, we're talking about the Time Lords, the Jams. How could they tell? The KLF. The KLF. They, That's the right. Jams, Jimmy baby. Conti and Bill Drummond. Um, before we get started, though, uh, a few housekeeping notes. We will be more consistent about recording after this episode. Thanks for letting us have a little mini summer vacation, which actually wasn't really a vacation. It was us finishing, major, frantically working and, frantically and doing working. a lot of very very intense serious life work <laughs> getting covid oh, again that's right you did i'm sorry yeah i, I yeah I'm, it was a bummer it wasn't as bad as the first I, time I'm, i moved to a um a time zone that is that is six hours away which makes recording even more difficult but but we're back on it we're back on it and um we we usually actually don't don't do this often here but we we just want to also say that uh if you have not been paying attention to what's happening in Pakistan or Sudan, uh, we suggest you doing a little Google and uh, reading up on it and uh, let people know what's up because it's an absolute disaster and, and, and utter, boggles utterly the mind. boggles the mind that is utterly heartbreaking. And um, why it's not on every front page of, the, of every newspaper in the world is 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 also baffling and, and also heartbreaking um so yeah we just want to take a little little psa to to say uh yeah do research let people know you know maybe maybe throw in five bucks you know something whatever you can do you know uh yeah i just wanted to go ahead and like uh start the show and just like this we we both feel pretty passionate about this and like feel like uh, yeah we just wanted to say something yeah and, and i think in a weird way it actually connects to a lot of what we're talking about today because i mean um you know this show is about music and it's about culture and i think that 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 one of the 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 kind of um the big capital q questions is like in the face of this kind of system of the face of like a, a global capitalism that's clearly like spinning out of control how much does any of this matter and yeah i think that that's a question that like i i certainly don't have an answer to but it's one that i think needs to be asked and like needs to be yeah. squared looked at squ- square in the face that maybe in, in in you know in comparison to a th- you know a quarter to a third of a country being underwater and 30 million people being displaced from their homes like maybe how how does music matter um in 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 that world and and i think that like kind of by happenstance actually like the 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 folks we're going to be talking about today thought about that a lot that's in some ways like at the center of their art which is like (laughs) is is music good enough to face the challenges of the world and they do that in kind of more lighthearted ways than 
than we're doing right now. But um, that's just kind of floating in the background, at least at least for me today. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a solid tie-in, you know. And uh, you know, also I think about things like um, when you think about a world without art, like I don't want to live in that world either, you know. But it does in these certain situations, it does, it does, it does uh, raise the question like, how does any of this matter? And yeah, that was like you said a question that two individuals, Jimmy Conti and Bill Drummond, better known as the KLF and a bunch of other monikers during the like during during the late 80s into the 90s were uh yeah, that there was a lot of uh looking in the mirror let's say for this for this band while they were having very unusual success <laughs> that was that that uh maybe tells us a lot about the industry, maybe doesn't. I don't know. But specifically and we're going to get into who the KLF were, who Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cotty were, and a little bit of their backstory. But specifically, we're going to be talking about a book that they co-wrote and released in 1988 called The Manual. And in parentheses, The Manual, How to Have a Number One, The Easy Way. <laughs> and it's basically a step-by-step -step written by these two on how to achieve a number one single with basically no money, and very little musical skills and it was basically written after the two had a uk pop hit some call it a novelty a number pop one hit, hit. A, a number, number one hit number multiple one hit. weeks yeah a number one hit some call it a novelty hit which i guess th these things come around every now and then um called doctoring the tardis the song is a mashup basically is i think the best way to, to describe it of yeah uh the doctor who theme music which is a long-running uh cult uk tv shows we're going for like 30 plus and, and years. it's actually an astonishing sound like it's it's derbia dahlia shire and the british Ra bbc radiophonic workshop like yeah, yeah. It's a, which is it's a very it's right. a distinctive iconic theme song that's the product of like actually like early um work with synthesize early groundbreaking work with synthesizers yeah um, yeah, yeah yeah that it's a huge there's a, i think there's been some like releases that like kind of dive into the two uh the the British was it called? The, I think it's the, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop I think is what it's called. Um, so it takes it takes the theme music of Doctor Who, and uh, Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part Two, which you've if you've ever been to a sporting event you've likely heard, and uh, it takes little sections from a song called Blockbuster by Sweet, and uh, while the song was uh, not received uh, well by critics, it was a commercial. It was a massive commercial hit that basically hit number one in the UK and New Zealand and reached top 10 in various other countries. And, uh, you know, afterwards, because this duo, which we'll get into in a minute, are probably some of the most eccentric uh, folks to uh, enter into any kind of uh, pop stardom, I guess that's fair to say. Uh, they immediately, in a very strange sort of uh, self-promotional way, uh, decided to write this book, The Manual, How to Have a Number One the Easy Way. This song... If you hear any part of the song, you get it. You don't need to hear much, Saxon. Just give him, give him a taste of of Doctor in the Tardis. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're a little unsure whether or not this episode will be like flagged for doing this because uh, there there was definitely some legal issues around that they experienced as well. But yeah, here we'll give a little little taste of what what this song is. Check it out. So yeah, so that that that's the hit that we're talking about, Doctor in the Tardis. 
the the number one single in the UK from the Time Lords, uh, aka the KLF, aka uh, one of the many monikers of Bill Drummond and Jimmy Conti, came out in 1988. And I, yeah, I just want to add one thing that, that, that the credit for the song is actually neither of those two, but actually it goes to what's called a Ford Time Lord, which was actually Conti's uh, 1968 Ford Galaxy American police car that he somehow um, bought. And uh, also known as the Jamsmobile, and uh, yeah, th- I mean, that car also makes a lot of other appearances in the, the long and strange winding career of the KLF, which maybe we'll touch on, maybe they we'll not. Put them, they put the car, didn't they? Put the car on top of the pops. I, my my memory is there's a video of like top of the pops, and they're like on stage and they're dancers and stuff, <laughs> and then there's just the car. <laughs> yeah, I mean, quite possibly. Yeah, yeah. But so, so we're gonna we're gonna dive a little bit into obviously who they were and what they were about. But you know, I guess just to back up a little bit, like let's let's like you know we're interested in talk we're interested in this because you know this came out this 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 song and then the you know the book afterwards, uh, you know the manual how to have a number one hit the easy way came out in 1988. And I think that like like just giving a look at like the book. And uh, and then also the career of the KLF, and then kind of comparing to like where we are now in like 2022. I don't know, can like reveal a lot of things about like how things have changed and like where we are in the world and like music and everything. So I, I guess to start, well, first of all, to start, quick shout out to Sebastian who sent us this amazing book called "The KLF: Chaos, Magic, and the Band Who Burned a Million Dollars" by John Higgs. Highly suggested y'all go read it. Shout out Sebastian for just randomly finding Sam's address and sending it to him and being like, I think you'll like this. We did like it. Now we're doing an episode on it. Thank you, Sebastian. So anyways, diving in to the book itself, why don't we why don't we start by uh, just giving the listeners a little taste about uh, the like, giving a why don't we start by uh, saying why, why don't you go ahead and read the uh, some of the opening opening paragraphs of uh, of the manual, how to have a number one the easy way. Be ready to ride the big dipper of the mixed metaphor. Be ready to dip your hands in the lucky bag of life. Gather the storm clouds of fantasy and anoint your own genius. Because it is only by following the clear and concise instructions contained in this book that you can realize your childish fantasies of having a number one hit single in the official UK Top 40, thus guaranteeing you a place forever in the sacred annals of pop history. Other than achieving a number one hit single, we offer you nothing else. There will be no endless wealth. Flame will ficker, flicker and fade, and sex will still be a problem. What was once yours for a few days will now enter the public domain. <laughs> and the book, the book just goes from that. And like exactly, yeah, yeah. And and it's <laughs> Does it's it really it's remarkable because as you heard from that song, like few things in the music industry, I feel like. I, that I've ever encountered managed to balance a um a deep love for pop music like actually these guys don't they were taking the piss clearly but yeah they also really do love pop music and they love pop music for what it is and uh, uh a clear-eyed sense of what the music industry is and how the music industry is part of is it integral to pop music? So it's like very much this is a this is a a a a money for nothing style joint. I would say for sure. Yeah, because I mean, like Sam, like I mean, you you you've like I think when we first met, you know, however long ago, I I think you were even back then a huge proponent of 
paying attention to pop music and like what it's doing and what it's saying and like how it kind of like directs us or helps us understand like where we are in the world you know i mean obviously like a very like developed uh privileged united states uk world but you've always been a real proponent of that no saxon absolutely and and i think that's something i really did feel and and i still do feel but maybe like in a more modified way in that i mean it's interesting right uh when we first had those conversations which were probably like a decade ago now not longer um we were dead like the the internet had happened like things were proliferating but the sense of pop music still being able to kind of play its its historical role of bringing people together across the lines of class and color and taste and religion um like uh, not always not exclusively not without hierarchies and um certain kinds of like appropriation and inequities but like this there was something kind of universal and, and utopic in that and i think it's an open question about whether that's still true in the present moment in a way that I think, I think is actually really interesting to reflect on in, in this book. And, and, you know, at a certain level, clearly this book was written in, in 88 and my kind of formative experience of pop music was, I would say, around the year 2000, a couple, you know, early, early 2000s mostly. But as much as things had changed between 88 and 2000, in many ways, they I would say they're more similar than different. And the fact that there was still kind of a mainstream. And it seems like that's very different to reflect back on this from the present, right? Like Bad Bunny is the biggest star on earth, maybe, right? But you could be that and still just have vast swaths of the pop universe that just don't don't interact with you at all in a way that no one was not in the pop universe was not yeah. i would say like interacting at some level with michael jackson or madonna that there is and partially that's because i think of, of the proliferation of media right and that the, the everyone you know pr- proliferation of streaming the way that, that this kind of fragmented a mainstream so there's a question i think that that we can that we can kind of dig into if their understanding of pop music and their engagement with that as a concept Clearly, that's like a historically bounded concept, right? Like pop music didn't always exist. And they they say this in the book, that pop music didn't always exist. And someday mm-hmm. it won't exist when, uh, <laughs> kind of right on the money yeah. here, they're like, when scientists come up with technology to give us the pleasures of pop music in a more efficient and direct way. Um, but you could argue that like <laughs> certain algorithms do a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and obviate the need for a mainstream in certain respects. And are only like, continuing to do that, actually. <laughs> yeah, and are continuing to do that. So there's, I think there's an open question about whether the, the that we should, we should come back to as we continue to have this conversation about whether the idea of pop music that they're playing with and therefore like the, the meaning that they assign to pop music, whether that still holds in the present. Yeah, yeah. But before we dive into that, let's give people a little context about who these two crazy fuckers were because... They are truly some unique individuals. <laughs> and like I said, I, the book I mentioned earlier, like highly suggest reading, it goes into it a lot deeper. There's also a documentary on the KLF out there. It has been pulled down from most streaming platforms as far as I can tell 
Although if you look hard enough, people, you can find it. And I highly suggest doing that as well, just to get a little taste of what these what these people are about. If you uh, if you want to know more after this episode. But um, yeah, let, let's just give a little context before we dive into some of the things that you were talking about, Sam. Like, like who were Jimmy Conti and Bill Drummond? Who are the KLF? How did they become the KLF? How did they become the Time Lords? What is this 1968 Ford Galaxy? Like, let's just give the people enough enough context uh, to, to just understand, like, where these two are coming from so that we can dive in to some of the more nitty-gritty details of the manual. Yeah, so both guys come out of the kind of cultural tumult of post-punk, um, which, um, I mean, I think the essential history of that is still uh, Simon Reynolds' fabulous Rip It Up and Start Again, and that's where our, most of... I haven't read that book in a while, but like most of what I know of this period comes from that. Um, so, so uh, if you want to learn more about this kind of this moment, definitely check that out. Um, and you know, in in the wake of punk, which actually in the UK is really small, right? Like a lot of bands get like roped in because they're like, we need more than three, <laughs> and they're like, and so the Stranglers are a punk rock <laughs> band, which like, I guess. Um, <laughs> or the damned, which like they vibe like a punk rock band, but really, I mean, there isn't that much difference in my mind between like the damned and Doctor Feelgood. Actually, it's like pub right. rock played fast. Anyway, sure. Um, in the kind of wake of punk, in that kind of DIY ethos, a whole lot of bands, um, especially often from the north of England, started playing with these same ideas, but kind of developing them in conversation with pop sounds, both older pop sounds and kind of newer pop sounds. And one of these people is Bill Drummond, who founded Zoo Records, um, which kind of released early singles from another a number of, of pretty important bands. Um, like like Echo and the Bunnymen, uh, Julian Copes, like uh, Teardrop Explodes, bands like that. Yeah, and, and kind of was really looking for, for singles, right? The idea that it's not about an album, it's about three minutes and 20 seconds of pure brilliance. Yeah. Also works with also works with the Strawberry Switchblade, um, which is a record I picked up for a dollar somewhere in college and listened to over and over and over again. And so when they appeared in this, I'm like, oh, the Strawberry Switchblade have a history. <laughs> <I thought. laughs> so yeah, so it's kind of in this scene, and then kind of ages out of it, right? He works as a an A and R guy for a while. He um, is kind of bouncing around the music industry in it and adjacent to it, um, has a band big in Japan that doesn't really go anywhere, releases a solo album that apparently is quite beautiful, but doesn't go anywhere and is kind of um, at, you know, kind of odds and ends. And then hip hop happens or like British people hear about hip hop <laughs> in like a honestly Honestly, in a weird way, it's the I would say that it's almost like the um, the post the postmodern version of punk in in that. Hear me out in that, like. A lot of famously with punk, right, there's like three bands, two clubs, and the media does a lot of work about it. And then kids start showing up with safety pins through their cheeks because that's what some reporter made up. And then the kids read that and then did it. And similarly, I feel like their vision of hip hop is not hip hop happened. And like they're connected to the deeply rooted Afro diasporic traditions that tie together the black Atlantic between London and Jamaica and the Bronx and Puerto Rico. 
No, it's like they heard about hip hop on the evening news, basically, and like maybe heard the Beastie Boys and were like, oh, we can sample records too. We can totally do that. And so they start and they create a band called The Jams, aka The Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, a insane semi-self-manufactured mythology that they steal from this Illuminatus trilogy of like conspiracy theory minded books and they release like a whole other story which we'll not get into (laughs) which is a whole other story and they make these songs that are terrible that like they're 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 hold up today at like listen to them today they're terrible the first one is all you need is love which just like samples big chunks of the Beatles, but it's it's kind of remarkable because basically it's like um, it's this act of like almost like violent reclamation. They're like, we have the technology now to take this stuff. Pop music belongs to all of us. That's why this song is valuable. So why can't we take a great big chunk of it and just drop it into the middle of our other song? And then they kind of follow that with an entire album of the same vibe called 1987 in parentheses, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> um, where they just kind of, he like kind of rap in like a fake Scottish accent <laughs> and uh, talk about like mythology and political commentary and then just have big chunks of samples all thrown together and it's it's wild because they're just like they really are taking the you know everyone using the Sheik's good times baseline um the one that like is in the center of all the sugar hill gang you know doom 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 right that that baseline that every early hip-hop song uses and it's sampling, but like they do other things to it. And they're like, what if we just um, take all of dance, most of Dancing Queen? <laughs> by ABBA. <laughs> by, by ABBA, which, which uh, and, and really the, the pinnacle of this approach, they actually they get to in the next album, which is called Whitney Joins the Jams, where basically it's they got slightly better for their second album at actually making like electronic music. And it's basically them inviting Whitney Houston to join their group. Um and the end of which is like big chunks of I want to dance with somebody as in their fantasy, they managed to convince Whitney Houston to join the jams. Um, it's it's a side note it's a, later in the career. They did convince Tammy Wynette to do a single that also was a major hit. But uh, for another for another uh, for, for you for you to, to learn about, uh, dear listener. <laughs> um, so basically, they make this album and it gets reviewed. And um, and Abba uh, hears that they've just stolen chunks of their music and sues them <laughs> to stop. Uh, and so they um, drive to Sweden. <laughs> they drive to Sweden to try to, to try to go explain what they've done to Abba, which like surely even if they had found them wouldn't have worked. But they go to Sweden. Um, they get shot at. Uh, actually, they get by like a farmer for accidentally trespassing. Yeah. Uh, they, they say that they got they got AAA right before they went to Sweden, and they're like, it was the best money we ever spent because our engine was blown up by a rifle. 
on our trip and AAA came and towed us all the way back to England. They're like, we got like $400 out of them. It was amazing. Um, so anyway, they're ordered to destroy all the copies of this record, which they do. Um, they dump a bunch into the North Sea. <laughs> they burn some in a field. Right. right. So, so the, the, they, uh, yeah, obviously not finding out Abba, they, Abba, 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 the Abba, they, they decided to present the gold disc of which they had earned to a, to a, a, a prostitute that they pretended was Agnetha failed on hard times and Agnetha being, uh, uh one of the, the members of, of, of Abba. And yes, a, a so, move that was definitely yeah. designed to get them approval to re-release their record. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so I mean, needless to say, like uh, as you can see, there's a couple of crazy weirdos that, <laughs> and a couple of crazy weirdos, and um, we're starting to get a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a little bit of notoriety. Yeah, a little bit of notoriety. They then release a little bit of success. Re- they re-release the record. Like I said, it's kind of at the, the beginning of the show. Um, they re-release the record with all of the samples taken out. Which now is a 45 because there were so many samples on it. Um, and then just give detailed instructions of what records to sample back in so that you can listen to their completed one themselves. What's funny about that is looking at it. And this is like the um, they're smart guys. It's it's not that different than a John Cage score, to be honest, like reading the detailed descriptions. Well, well, Cage would have these various kind of uh, uh, controlled indeterminacy pieces, right? Where and, right. and and use pre-recorded sounds pretty heavily in a lot of them, um, right? And would you know, you know, big on taking the ego out of things, thinking about uh, how to have improvisation without the self to allow kind of human creativity to flourish in a space between multiple people, and would do these things where you know, would have uh, a piano player try to correctly play like a, a pebble from a Zen garden that he had traced on a piece of paper. It's like, how is the piano player going to a classical piano player? How are they going to perform that? They are improvising because they're never going to perform it the same way, but they're accurately trying to play the score. It's a, it's a, it's a, I've done a couple of these things. Um, it's, it's really, it's an interesting experience to be like trying to faithfully do something impossible and yeah. you are making up stuff as you go along, but it's not you doing it exactly. And that's kind of, um. so it has these pieces with, with recorded music components and records that are supposed to be played at various moments or the radio turned on for a while and whatever's on the radio is part of the piece, um, right. which kind of argues from, from his perspective that you're always in a room. That room always sounds different. There's always someone rustling next to you. All of that is always in the piece. And right. like in a weird way, these this is this brilliant like how to make our record into a pop record again um i don't know it really reminded me of that and i I don't actually think that's like a totally um i think they knew about that stuff they're 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 conceptually minded folks i would say and they i mean regardless and regardless if they didn't know about that that i think that's that that statement still stands they were very conceptually minded 100 percent so with, with like pretty much everything, and when that leads us, basically, yeah, go ahead. So like, so they so they got a gold record. So they have a gold record. We're reviewing them. They're, yeah, they're moving. Then they have a second. This is what's interesting about them is that they they've got this complicated mythos that we're going to talk about some. Um, this kind of uh, not the full ramifications of their mythos, but like, um, 
the, the conceptual elements of their art, um, which can be prank, uh, is this fascinating mixture of kind of like incredibly, incredible near mystical sincerity and total piss taking, but also in a way that I don't think they admit very much. They also have a fair bit of skill, skill that they develop over time. And what's interesting is they release a second record and they release a second record as a jam called Who Killed the Jams? Again, jam standing for Justified Agent of Moo Moo. That's actually pretty good. It's the first record in 1987, What the Fuck is Going On, is almost unlistenable. Who Killed the Jams is kind of good. And there's like bits and pieces where they're taking ideas and working with them. And I think that that's going to be a tension throughout their career that they don't address much, but that we can kind of think about as, as part of their artistic practice, right? Which is that in addition to this like high blown, you know, loving art, loving pop, loving pop, loving the music industry or hating the music industry, but being aware of its functioning. There was also real skill and kind of um, uh, precision, increasing levels of precision in their music making that enabled them to do all the things that they did. Um, it wasn't just kind of pure ideas floating in the ether. It was also kind of the day-to-day -day working on it. And like, Who Killed the Jams is kind of a cool record. Um, and if you want to listen to anything from them, this is the one to listen to. It still has a lot <laughs> of fake Scottish rapping, <laughs> but it kind of works. Only fake and Scottish because they're they're from Liverpool, not not Scotland. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. okay. So to be totally honest, like British listeners will, um, any British listeners, I I apologize for what I'm sure is it's it it sounds to a uncultured American as a Scottish accent. What I believe it is is like a heavy, heavy like Scouser Liverpool accent. That's like a clear Northern English intense accent that my understanding is that's not how Drummond actually talks most of the time. Um, people at the time described it as sounding like, like he was pretending to be a fisherman. So as you're saying their, their, their skill, their skills are increasing their, their, their dedication to the conceptual aspect of their work is, 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 is solidifying. And lo and behold, they get a fucking they have number, a number one hit, one <laughs> hit with <laughs> the stupidest song <laughs> maybe ever written. Possibly. Yeah. And, right, which is, again, Doctor and the TARDIS. They, <laughs> they have this amazing music video for it, which is mostly just the police car driving around. They have Daleks, which are the, the bad guys um, in Doctor Who. Um, with this very distinctive voice that they have singing back up. This like, <laughs> is how Daleks talk. Uh, but uh, uh, according um, to, at, at least according to the manual, and you can't believe everything the manual says, they were so, <laughs> their fit, the Daleks they made were so poorly put together that they actually couldn't be sued for copyright infringement. <laughs> <laughs> amazing amazing so so it stays number one for exactly one week in the uk <laughs> critics hate it but apparently the british public loves it um and they're they're new zealand brethren and shortly after they come out with the manual how to have a number one the easy way and what they're essentially detailing supposedly is 
step-by-step guide on how you can achieve a number one single with no money and no musical skills. So diving into this book, as we did earlier with a little like intro, what are some, what is some of the advice that these two give? And like, maybe just for a little fun exercise, like how do those, how does this advice hold up today if it does at all? And I should, I should preface this, which, uh, um, you know, there is something kind of funny because they actually in the book admitted that, uh, you know, they were writing a book that will be completely redundant within 12 months, an obsolete artifact. It's only being only be only, only it's only use. It's only use being a bit of social history that records the aspirations of a certain strata in the British society in the late 80s. And uh, yeah, that's so that they were right. They're right about that, I think. But yeah, like let's let's see uh, what what was it like to like have a number one hit in the in the eighties in the British society and how does it compare to to today? I guess so. So like maybe one place to start is that one of the pieces of advice that the two give in this book is watch Top of the Pops religiously every week and learn from it. <laughs> and yeah, and, and and I think that they go even more. They they tell you to go out and buy. One to two copies of now. This is what I call music, which a a a, a compilation that I grew up with. <laughs> I don't know. Do do like any Zoomer listeners, if you exist, <laughs> um, no, just, they don't exist. Yeah. Uh, if anyone like, I don't know if people still like grow. If that's a thing anymore. Um, honestly, that's like a side episode in his, his, itself, Saxon. Like <laughs> the yeah, life totally. and death of now. This is what I call music. Um, because they 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 think that it's really important for anyone thinking about pop music to really drill down into into its simplistic, idiotic essence. That any ideas of of true self expression, <laughs> um any ideas of true artistry need to be abandoned that what you're trying to do and and they don't claim i think it was interesting they don't claim that all pop is like this right they claim that this is the bare minimum to get onto the charts and that if you don't have this you won't get on the charts you can get on the charts and then also be good music but you don't need to be good music to get on the charts and you need to get a sense for for what kind of the general framework of music is and it, it's really important they say to leave your preconceptions at the door and so that so this is just an, another another brief reading start listening to the hits and now compilation lps from end to end of course your conditioned brain will tell you it's all a pile of shit and pale into insignificance compared to the golden era in pop all of which is capitalized the golden era in pop when you were on the cusp of your adolescent years Dig deeper into your heart, and you will know that you are just lying to yourself. All eras in pop music are golden ages, or will be looked upon as such by the only generation that matters at any given time. Not only are all ages in chart pop equal, chart pop never changes. It only appears to change on its surface level. Unwrap pop's layers, and what we are left with is the same old plate of meat and two veg that have kept generation of pop pickers well satisfied. They're not wrong. <laughs> and well, maybe this might not get you a number one. They're hit not wrong anymore. There's some serious critiques going on in this book. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I mean, for one, I do think that there's 
and and this is i think again like written by two people who love pop music um two people whose musical careers right they started drummond starts with zoo records um trying to make pop music drummond starts his career by making pop records with zoo records with bands that i think at in his idealistic 20s he thought could change the world with their music um echo and the bunnymen certainly i think he believed that they you know the jams are like taking these giant chunks of past classics and mashing them together violently which again is this like it's an act of desecration and sacrilege but it's only desecration if you at some level believe that these that these pieces of song mean something right that like making fun of the beat stealing the beatles is only aesthetically interesting if the beatles mean something if they're just another band it it doesn't mean the same thing the way i would say to argue that them starting that song with all you need is love means something different than like kanye west sampling king crimson because king crimson while it matters to certain people doesn't have like a symbolic cachet the beatles all you need is love uh, which was one of their biggest hits and was um I think debuted live on a satellite link all over the world. One of the first performances ever to do so like means a lot. And then they get to hear and And what I read them as doing in this is like <laughs> looking, looking deep into the mirror and being like, okay, if actually <laughs> in order to make a pop hit, you need to listen to what at some level you believe is Drek that appeals to, 13 to 17 year olds and whatever at some level defining pop music as what 13 to 17 year olds like and saying that all pop music is is equally good because what that the, this this crop of 17 year olds is somehow like worse than the previous generation's crop of 17 year olds that's clearly stupid right it'll all be different there can be problems in the culture or successes in the culture but like <laughs> the raw material short of some like i don't know catastrophic atmospheric event is like they don't feel less so like like all the pop music is equal and like for them i think that like throughout this project like really interrogating like okay if that's true if what i just read was true like why are we doing this but at the same time at some level they are like well we're doing it because it's the only thing that matters because otherwise we're just trying to express our own little fragmented artistic selves. And that's fundamentally, fundamentally indulgent, right? That if separated from the mainstream of pop music culture, you could say whatever you want. Like lots of people have said whatever they want, but just the, like the neoliberal freedom to say whatever you want actually isn't that interesting. Minus community. Yeah. I mean, it, Right, I mean, yeah, exactly. Minus community, exactly, because it has no stakes. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's like, there's like, no, there's no stakes to, to like if you're like saying it to like a bunch of like-minded people who are basically like think the same thing, or like it's just the community in which you are expressing it to is so much smaller. So in a weird way, it's like suggesting, like you kind of mentioned the Beatles, that like, yeah, like actually like pop music. That's kind of the argument for like why say something like pop music is so important. And why it matters. Because it's able to make those connections. Because it's able to make that community. Yeah. And so then it's like when you drill down to like the actual fundamental 
like elements of like actual pop music and come to find out that it's fucking vapid and doesn't mean anything <laughs> then it's like oh so the most so the most popular music that has like the biggest impact on the greater population listening population that has like that certain cultural cachet and like relevancy as you're saying like if you sample a beatles tune actually is just a vapid it's just a bunch of vapid nonsense <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i think that's what they're saying but yeah. also this vapid nonsense is all we have at some is level all we have yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so so i guess like the question is like so wait so what the fuck is the point of pop music as a cultural form <laughs> yeah that, I mean, I think that's the fundamental question of both right. the Doctor and the TARDIS single and the manual. And this kind of, I think, opens the door to the project of the KLF. And, and I think that that, that that fundamental question and that fear that like maybe, maybe it's nothing, right? Like maybe we're trapped in a godless world where pop music is terrible and it's the only thing that matters. And that's just the way of it. Um I think that they're open they're open to that possibility and it and the fear of that I think drives them the rest of their career certainly into the the project of the KLF which we'll talk about a little bit at the end of the episode and kind of the shocking conclusion of their musical careers but at the same time I think that they believe that despite the sausage making despite the vapidity there's also something magical and personal that still happens, still adheres in a pop record. And you can kind of see that in their description of how to make this pop hit. And basically, they kind of give this detailed, semi-detailed, semi-discursive, step-by-step breakdown. First, you need a group name. Ask your friends. They have good ideas. Don't make it too smart. Don't make it too dumb. Then, come up with a chorus that you can shout. That chorus should be incredibly simple, and touch a basic human emotion. And it should be something that instantly appeals to everyone. What's fascinating about this as a sidebar, they kind of, they, they, they talk about their own, um, their, the, the chorus of their own song, which is Doctor Who, Hey Doctor Who, Doctor Who in the TARDIS, Doctor Who, Hey Doctor Who, Doctor Who, Doc, Doctor Who, Doctor Who, Doc, Doctor Who. Um, and they say gibberish, of course, <laughs> but every lad in the country under a certain age related instinctively to what it was about. <laughs> I mean, what's, what's crazy about it, right, is that basically, you know, they're talking about this as something new. But this has been, you know, in, in my research into Tin Pan Alley, into the creation of these forms of commodified popular music, um, it's basically it's basically unchanged. In fact, almost everything about how to have a number one hit song that they release in this manual is how Tin Pan Alley operated in the teens and 20s. To the point that in 1922, uh, Irving Berlin wrote that the title, which must be simply and easily remembered in, in, in a manual, in a newspaper article that was an inter... Sorry, a, in a magazine article in which he was interviewed about 10 rules for how to have a hit song written in the 20s so 60 years almost 70 years before the klf um number two is 
The title, which must be simply and easily remembered, must be planted effectively in the song. It must be emphasized, accented again and again throughout verse and chorus. The public buys songs, not because it knows the songs, but because it knows and likes the title idea. <laughs> it's, it's just this idea. It's just this idea that, yeah, it's about reaching everyone via the title, via a chorus that shouldn't be too clever. And he kind of even goes on to say, like, drop your, lose the fancy rhymes. If it's a choice between a clever rhyme and repeating the title of the song one more time, repeat the title of the song one more time. He would have a hundred percent understood and liked Doctor in the TARDIS. Like, no question. <laughs> Arim Berlin, a fan of the KLF, Doctor in the TARDIS. <laughs> and so, right, there is a there is a like it's funny, but it's also like, yeah, this is at at the core of pop music, they say, is something really simple, core, emotional appeal. Um, simple statement and what's different in their approach though not that different given <laughs> Irving Berlin's penchant for taking famous classical melodies and slightly ragging them and making them things like that memorizing that mesmerizing Mendelssohn tune um, which was a big hit in 1912 I believe maybe 1911 the KLF or the jams say that what you should do is just <laughs> sample it. <laughs> just take big chunks of other people's songs <laughs> and shove them together. Um, you take a groove <laughs> from a from a song for the verse. They say that you should try to take a groove from a black American song. Um, and they have this astounding digression where they go, Black American music has most of the best grooves. It's in they've that community has produced most of the best grooves. Unfortunately, the music industry was created by white lawyers, and so they give half the money to lyrics and half the money to the melody and none of the money to the groove. That probably the groove should get 80% of all revenue and Bo Diddley should be a billionaire. Um <laughs> lawyers get to work. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. Um which yeah, uh another just like it's, it's it's a one and a half paragraph aside and you're like, yeah, that's um that's pretty much correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And they're like, but given the fact that there is no correct way to copyright a groove, we're just going to steal them. Um so you take a groove, you take an inane chorus, you have a very simple reproducible Intro, which should be an atmospheric version of your chorus. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, breakdown, double chorus. Song structure, which is kind of a, a pretty the standard pop structure. And then you go to a studio and then you tell other people what to do. And in fact, throughout the whole process, it's about having kind of... And, and this is the key thing, I think, for them, where, 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 where pop music doesn't become a, a kind of vacuous nothingness. Because they kind of say that even though you're just going to take elements from other people's songs, uh, the results are going to sound like you somehow. That, 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 that there's an element of you. And, and more than that, I feel like that there's an element um, in the kind of, of, of almost like the collective unconscious in a great pop song. That there's a ask your mates, ask your friends, be nice to everyone in the studio, bring them endless cups of tea. Don't listen too much to too much music. Just come in and make demands. And like the the kind of uh, uh, the a trust in the 
the native genius of um of the consumer i guess is like the thing that maybe makes it all okay what do you mean by the native trust of the consumer that, that kind of like that democratic aspect we talk a lot about that like yeah people, yeah, yeah sure people just living their lives have a certain kind of brilliance and beauty and meaning about them and that a great song catches just a hint of that yeah i mean i think i think you know one of the great like debates amongst like if you like read like the journals or like you know the conversations amongst like artists is like trusting your instinct or like the intuitiveness of like creating something you know and it becomes all this very sort of description of something that almost seems like magical and like (laughs) indefinable but if if you if you turn it around and like take that away from the artist and make it more about the sort of uh the mass the mass intuition of the listener you know it it kind of becomes like you know it takes on sort of like a new contour that like it becomes democratic it becomes like something that everybody can enjoy and even if it doesn't really mean anything it's completely vapid right and like there's something about like that inexplicable like the in the unexplainableness of like a dumb pop song or a dumb rock song having like such enormous popularity like okay maybe we're all dumb sheep just being like shepherd along right but i mean there's something intuitive to the nature of like everybody hearing that song or hearing that melody or hearing that that ditty and like taking to it you know even if they actually like kind of hate it yeah you know or like hate that it's like stuck in their head like how many times have you like heard a song that was like stuck in your head and you're like ah, oh, i gotta get this fucking song and it's stuck out of my you know get out of my head i fucking hate that song why is it in my head but why is it in your head <laughs> you know there's something like it's like tapping into almost this like i mean this is like obviously it has nothing to do with like the economic aspect of it or how the you know the industry works or whatever but it kind of is almost like tapping into this like unknowable in a sense mm-hmm. that kind of like brings people together it brings people together almost in a sort of like collective, like unconscious sort of like joy in a sense or something. You yeah. Know? No, that, I think that it that feels like raw and intuitive and like actually not describable through intellect or or words. <laughs> yeah. And and I think what you're saying is right about that kind of that that there's a funny thing that happens in, in this manual, right? And, and and maybe what you're saying is that, like, it gestures there's a funny thing at the heart of, like, popular culture writ large, which is that a lot of the rest of the manual, after the songwriting part, is this kind of description of the specific maneuvers necessary to get a physical record pressed and recorded and into shops and onto the charts that involves taking out increasingly large amounts of money and debt from a bank um, in this kind of uh, insane, uh, almost like kamikaze strike on the music industry um, that's either going to pay off and make everyone millions or leave you in nearly unimaginable debt. (laughs) And like uh, that, that part of the book I think is interesting from like a perspective of like what's changed, what's not changed. Yeah. But, but, even more than that, I think, is this interesting thing where they talk in, in great detail then, right? Like about how the sausage gets made. How do you get to a world in which this song, what steps, step-by-step maneuvers do you need to take in order to get your track on top of the pops? But then, and this is kind of the miracle that they, I think, that that 
they're fascinated by. And in some ways, arguably, like they wrote this book in an attempt to understand. The miracle is that it, somehow it doesn't matter how the song got to be a hit. Because once it's a hit, you live in a world in which it is a hit. And then something transformative for a second has happened to it, that everyone is listening to it, that, that it enters like a different register of human life. That's both like, I don't know, deeply historically contingent in that it's a product of a specific stage of industrial capitalism, but also like probably like semi-mythic. So it like, you, you know, a big hit song does something different to people in a way that I think is, you know, um, maybe like connects to the core of like yeah, what yeah. music does to humans in like the, 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 the big question mark way. And right, so, that's like, what I was kind of trying to get at, basically. Yeah, yeah, like the, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and once you get to that world where it's a hit song, it never wasn't a hit song. It was always a hit song. The world is suddenly remade anew in which Doctor and the TARDIS was always a hit song. You can't have a failed hit song. Songs kind of become the elect in this almost like religious way, right? They are hits, and then they become hits, and then they always, they always were hits. <laughs> um once they're hits, there was never a time where they weren't going to be a hit once they've become a hit. And it changes how the song functions. It changes what the song does. Um, and like, I think you're saying that there is something like remarkable about, about the way it connects people, about the way it creates community. And at the same time, it is the product of this ex weird exploitative industry. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, a question came up um, one time on one of the shows about, well, who gives a fuck about the major labels? And maybe like that's what's also why we find this story of the KLF, but also this book so interesting. Exactly what you're kind of talking about right now, which is like, well, we do give a fuck about the major labels because they come out with pop hits that creates this sense of community and like fundamentally shapes our understanding of like musical history. Sure. And it really is this like super exploitative, capitalist driven, money driven uh, industry. And yet it is resulting oftentimes in these hits that do all these things in which we're describing and are being suggested like in this book, the manual. And so we're like, well, well we, okay, well in that case, like we want to pay attention to that, <laughs> you know, like, like, because like you said, like, sure. There's something really magical also about being in like, you know, a fucking punk band or a hardcore band and playing to like 30 people in a room. Right. But if you think about like what impacts the world on like a kind of greater level, it's of course pop music. Right. And so it's like, well, I want to know, like, what's behind that? What are the strategies behind that? Like, who are the people, like, behind that? Why are, like, why, like, why are they putting money behind this? Like, where's the money going? Who, is the, who are they exploiting? And, I mean, that kind of, kind of hits at the fundamental heart of, like, a lot of what we talk about and, like, why we do give a fuck about the major labels because <laughs> they're the ones, you know, the puppet strings. They're the, one, the hand on the puppet strings for a lot of this stuff. And yet, what creates, what comes out of a pop song as we we're just describing now is something that's like kind of, I mean, not to sound really saccharine here, but I mean, it's sort of like sort of utopic or communal or like, you know, unites people across, like you said earlier, like across like colors or class or whatever. And you're like, well, okay, how does this like really sort of ugly, gross, fucked up exploitive industry, like music still prevails in a sense, despite it being maybe like a completely manufactured, like money driven shitty people behind it like you know like 
are the artists not making enough money like that shit still fucking happens you know and i don't know i think this was kind of like i think that's why it's so interesting about the story it kind of hits at a lot of the heart of like not only like why we do this show but also like like why we're interested in the things we're interested in hits at kind of like why we do actually maybe consider and like you said maybe this has changed a lot but why like maybe we take a fascination with pop music and maybe place a little bit more importance on it than say you know a lot of my friends <laughs> but i guess the other question i think that this project this book poses right is for all of that connection like if actually like there are you know limits to the level not just like the complexity of thought but like is it possible that this system is so all-encompassing and this is i think that, that that's something that they that the, the jams and the KLF like grappled with throughout their career. Sure, you can have this connection, but like, if that connection is fundamentally possible because it's been hijacked by this system, and therefore like it's only projecting comforting problem, comforting stuff that actually numbs people to the horrors of the world that we live in the horrors of the situation that we find ourselves in. Is it possible that like no music would be better than that? That no pop would be better than that? That actually the point is that that feeling of that warm human community making feeling of connection, like given the limits that this system imposes on it, that actually, you know, in this very like kind of like Adorno false consciousness mass culture thing numbs people and it numbs people. Maybe, you know, Adorno thought like it numbs people because it just force beats them down until they can not accept anything else. Another version is that it connects to something deeply human, but like so do potato chips, right? We love potato chips because we love salt and fat. We, for evolutionary reasons, we love salt and fat, right? But you shouldn't just eat potato chips, even though they short circuit your brain because they're so delicious. And like, I don't know, there's, there's an argument that for all, for all that they were doing with like Dr. Natardis, that it's the, it's a potato chip of a song. And that maybe like, you know, for, if, if I'm wearing the Doomer hat today, um, like pop music is, you know, is a, is junk food that comforts people be- because it's good because it's delicious. I think also what's interesting though, is that on that note, and this is maybe the more, the more, maybe the more cynical view is that what it's also revealing is that if it's this extremely exploitative, like money driven industry that is producing this pop music and then pop music is simultaneously showcasing like what it can do to kind of bring people together and like whether it's an escape or whether it's like the Adorno like being being into or whatever I'm getting this fucking dumb song stuck in my head for whatever reason it begs the question what would music look like or pop music look like outside of that system outside of that exploitative system and what is its potential it wouldn't be music as we know it it wouldn't be music as we know it wouldn't it. be music as we know it but what i'm trying to say is like what if it wasn't this industry that was fueling like this 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 kind of music or this pop music or like these this kind of thing and then like what does that look like and like that's when maybe things get a little dark and depressing that it looks like, like web three bro this is 
<laughs> oh no are you just saying that because i live in berlin now yeah saying... <laughs> no listen no, no. berlin berlin still uses fax machines i don't, I don't even, like I, like i don't i don't know anyways um yeah uh and then, you know we can't answer that question it's neither here nor there right but it's just something that i think that gets brought up where it's like well this sort of transformative uh historically culturally important like pop music becomes transformative and like historically important and like takes on these like characteristics that we've all that we've been detailing throughout this whole show and it, it, you can't help but ask like well what would it look like outside of this fucked up system which we also detail you know and how are 50 plus episodes have money for nothing and i think that and i think that's at the heart of a lot of what like bill Drummond and like conti were like really really um thinking about and maybe even having a sort of existentialist crisis about and even you know bill Drummond explained in an interview once that in 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 writing about the manual that you know it was an excuse to say a lot of things i wanted to say about the how the industry worked it was an excuse to go out and say to the people all they can say to themselves if you want to do something go and do it don't wait to be asked don't wait for a record company to come and want to sign you or a management company just go and do it also, it was saying, if you want to have a number one, you can have it. It can't make you rich. It won't make you happy, but you can have it. You know, and that's I feel like at the heart of like the sort of tension that's constantly, I think, underlining like everything that these two did, and then obviously in their final moniker, the KLF, also became I think uh, a lot more present. Yeah, and and I do think though that that last line I think is really, really, really interesting, which is like it may not make you money, it may not make you rich, but you can have a number one hit. Right. And I think that's interesting because I'm thinking back to like an episode we did with David Arditi um, about kind of like the ideology of contracts. And what he argues, right, is that, that there are all of this kind of like ideological work that record contracts, that the, not even record contracts do. They do do that. But the idea of a contract, the idea of getting signed as this kind of like magical seal of approval that comes from above that works in different ways that means something and that that does a tremendous amount of work to structure people's expectations of the music industry even people who and maybe especially people who aren't involved in the music industry right it mystifies the operations of the culture industry such that folks kind of treat it as something outside and beyond themselves and like i think that 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 like that 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 last line which i never i hadn't read before i don't think but like this idea that what he was trying to do and this project does is like demystify the business part of it it's not demystifying the mo- the art part of it and it's not yeah, and yeah. not demystifying it the way that someone like a critic like steve albini does in like the, this uh, famous piece written for the baffler that we, we've discussed a bunch of times um about like why you make more money as an indie musician than signed to a major label it's like explaining the magic of the music industry in a way that a way that centers that centers the sausage making process um it doesn't say that like oh there's something better that you can get out of knowing there's nothing you can do but that it is possible for anyone it kind of democratizes access almost it's possible for you to have a hit if you do these things if you know how this system works it won't get you anything, but it's possible. And all of a sudden, if you realize that, then you're like, oh, actually, all of these people on top of the pop are not somehow the elect. They're people who did this set of steps, more or less. They've got more or less this kind of connections. 
and all of a sudden it becomes a, a very different very different system i feel like um looking at it and i i would say and i would just say like you know it's it really it's you know i think that's a really great point and i would just add to like something you said earlier that like i think it doesn't when you said it doesn't demystify the musical aspect of it and i think if anything it kind of like puts more of a spotlight on the sort of mystification of the musical aspect of it and kind of amplifies it in a sense sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that that at that point what what makes something special is is somehow in a weird way like you've gone back to this genius but it's like a decentered genius it's like the genius of existing and being open to the world yeah. rather than like anything you do because you're not special and it's not the music industry that makes you special it's just sort of like existing <laughs> yeah 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 totally yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so what happens to the K- yes yeah, so what happens to the klf after this maybe to, to 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 hit the final the final the final the final stretch here so after this they really quickly acid house happens in england 1988 second summer of love i actually um did a whole uh documentary audio documentary for afropop worldwide about this it's called roots and future you can go check it out on their soundcloud about um the history of uk dance music and i talk about this moment a lot but basically um a handful of drugs, a handful of DJs, a handful of sounds, <laughs> a handful of, I guess, like social practices, specifically like people figuring out that like use of technology and spaces to create raves, easily accessible, massive raves throughout England. And all of a sudden there was this enormous burst of, of this of raving, which is totally new social formation. It's like it's like it reminds me almost of like the 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 great awakening in the U S when all of a sudden there start being these massive Protestant revivals that go through the countryside and people come and they're speaking in tongues and they're like, it, <laughs> their lives are being changed. And the same thing happens in England, except around dance music for this huge cross class, cross racial um, groups that kind of just kind of emerges in this almost like revolutionary way, like out of the social ether. And the guys see this and they're like, go to some of these places and they they're blown away and they you know they take ecstasy and go to raves and they're like this is the best um and so they start making uh pretty quickly bands from the sound start bursting in the charts and they start making kind of building off of that second jams record uh who killed the jams start making increasingly excellent i would call it like post acid house pre uk hardcore dance music just pre breakbeat just pre breakbeat but they they're almost in the background um fuck yeah and they're really and they have these these uh huge big these also they call it ambient <laughs> so they call it the stadium ambient these massive weird mystical tracks um that mix kind of like their personal mythology and euphoria. And they go to number one, like worldwide. They have huge hits and they run their own record label. So they're like printing money basically because yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's way better to own your own record label than to be signed Believe to someone else's. <laughs> Believe it or not. And, and the thing is though, that despite all of that, at some level, it seems like that they were trying to like take these insights into pop music, take this kind of, um, this critique of the industry partially by like lacing these songs with their own insane mythology and like uh 
it's not quite red pilling. It's like uh, uh, <laughs> chaos pilling <laughs> the mainstream. But like they want to like, you know, like freak out the squares, but like freaking them out in like the Frank Zappa way, which is uh, according to him, a process whereby an individual casts off outmoded and restricted standards of thinking, dress and social etiquette in order to express creativity, creativ- creatively in order to express creatively his relationship to his immediate environment and the social structure as a whole. Uh, <laughs> um, right? Like, that's, I feel like that's what they're trying to do with these singles. Like, they're trying to freak people out. Um, and it doesn't work. Or maybe it does, but they're also just, like, more pop songs, right? They're on the top ten next to everything else. It turns out that, like, for all of their, like, weird revolutionary attempt to like undercut the machine through critique they're becoming just another part of the machine they have this fabulous song that you mentioned you mentioned earlier where they have um uh tammy wynette sing on uh like the fourth version of of um the song uh just fed an ancient and it's a huge hit and then all of a sudden they're deluged by requests from from other elderly pop songs to pop stars to like do a song featuring them and they're just like yeah exactly we haven't changed the world and so in like one of the most famous flameouts in music history they appear at the Brit Awards um doing a version of their trance hit uh doing a version of one of their hits backed by grindcore band extreme noise terror (laughs) in which they shoot a machine gun full of blanks (laughs) into the audience dump a dead sheep outside of the um the hotel where the event was being held delete their back catalog and break up and in fact as if separating themselves from the music industry wasn't enough they famously burn a million the last million pounds that they had and tape it and make a video make a video of it where they just burn a million pounds and then they disband disappear kind of kind of disappear for a while certainly as as the kale as and they're you know they're they're major chart topping musicians and they're just like we can't we can't do this at any level like at some level i think that they you know from our conversation i feel like the way to think about that is like they ran into the limits of pop music and they're like maybe it's better not to say anything at all i feel like that's a good place to end <laughs> i don't know i don't know how much like we want to tie a bow on that that feels like you know i kind of almost want to leave it a little bit open ended for for listeners to consider that themselves in a sense because i think you know, uh, for, it's grim, but from every conversation that I mean, it's grim has occurred between the two since that time, whether in interviews or otherwise, they don't really have an answer for it either. They seem they seem a bit perplexed and almost as if they're still turning it um, over in their their head, and and they don't regret they, it. It doesn't they, sound. It's not like they regret it, but they 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 almost don't understand it. And I mean, there's a whole other aspect to that as well, which they you know this theories about kind of like sort of collective unconscious theories that they that they contend with yeah Magic. yeah yeah a lot of alan moore but like we, we you know we don't need to go into that um but yeah i guess i don't know maybe maybe one place to end which is like you know 
What are the limit? What are those limitations? I mean, are those limitations the industry? Is it like capitalism or like you know, like, I don't know, like you know, like like something? Is, you know, it's just an entertainment I mean, I, I, in the end. Like I don't know. Like I mean, you contend a lot with this stuff. I you know historically, I guess like you know how how it was. Yeah, and I know, mean, and like I said, I don't want to. I don't want to force you into a conclusion here because I think. I think a lot of I think the Kellef kind of disbanded not having a conclusion and kind of like, you know, leaving it very much in the form of a question and like not knowing the answer. But like, you know, just I don't know, like what what are those limitations? Like, what do you think? You know, if you have I thought. mean, for, for me, it's kind of crazy. They they, they choose silence. Right. Right. And and Dr- I mean, uh, uh, Drummond later kind of gets um, famous for for no music day. Which is he thinks that that sound has been devalued by <laughs> everyone listening to music constantly. So he's trying to get people to spend a day where they don't listen to any music. Um. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is this question, right, where they're like the contradictory dilemma that that you posed. I think uh, when we're talking about the manual of like maybe pop music is like <laughs> insipid and incredibly limited, but maybe that's all there is. Um. Like one answer is like it's all that there is if you're the kind of person who decides to pay attention to pop music, and then maybe you just need to give it all up. Hmm. Like that's that's their answer. They're just like, you can't have music that's not pop music in this moment. So, right that that we're we we live in a historically contingent moment. There's one way to read it, right? We live in a historical historical moment when. All music at some level is structured by its adjacency or lack thereof the to popular music mainstream. the popular mainstream, such that such that music that doesn't ever touch the mainstream is either defined in opposition right. yeah. to it often, or it's lacking something essential, or it's commenting in some way on it. And you know, maybe you know when you're saying like, what would music look like outside of it? I don't know, but. You know, maybe maybe the guys in the KLF are like, well, we don't know. We're not there yet. And so given these choices of how to make music, we just won't. Yeah. Yeah. They went silent. Right. It's, yeah. Is you, you choose you choose. And, you know, and we all know people. And to cut ties of the money that you that you made off of. it. And we know people who just don't pay attention to music that much. I mean, like, <laughs> there's not like like paying attention to like <laughs> film or the art world <laughs> or literature or any other kinds of art doesn't necessarily it's not like music is uniquely bad you can have it it doesn't get you anything but you can have it it's, you know it's, <laughs> yeah it doesn't you know but but uh you know that, that that that's one i mean pretty radical answer it's just like okay uh we're at yeah yeah and they were and they were and they were and and i don't know i mean i think that that's kind of a, a radical it's a radical gesture it's a radical move it's something like I am not at this moment in my life capable of doing, but like it is it, for me, like a sobering tale of, of like people who are really trying to push, to push limits to see like, okay, can we steal the pop music to make it work? Can we hack the pop music to make it work? Can we make really good pop music with kind of subversive messages within the utopian space of a rave oriented dance floor? to make it work and the answer was like no and so like maybe you know in the face of the world it's not enough well on that note maybe we'll go ahead and leave it a little bit more open-ended on this uh on this episode 
we promise that we are going to be hitting a much more consistent release schedule. Thanks once again for being patient with us this August. Um, hope you're staying cool and safe wherever you were. Music by Bird Language. Please rate and review us. Follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to our newsletter. You know the places. And we will definitely be back in two weeks. And we got some great interviews lined yeah, up. Yeah, we're really excited about and, it. Uh, and by all means, please email us if you've got any more thoughts about about things talked about on this episode. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.